a little bit more about uh, some things going on next weekend, um, which I'm excited for, but having Andy up here today uh, gives me at least a very brief opportunity uh, to just say next week we're going to have the like tearful, happy opportunity um, to pray for and bless and send out uh, our friends, the Smith family, as they go back, as they move back to Indonesia to continue serving among the Asmat people there. And I'll say more next week, and I'm going to be here, and I'm looking forward to it. I hope you all are looking forward to that as well. Um, but uh, that's coming up this next week. Today, we're continuing to pay attention to Jesus as he is presented in Matthew's gospel. And by the time we get to the end of this passage that Sarah just read, one thing is clear. You can't ignore the real Jesus. You can try to explain Jesus away. You can try to reinterpret Jesus. You can be interested in Jesus and go on your merry way. But there's one thing you can't do. You can't ignore the real Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, just a little, just a couple uh, pages away, or rather in Matthew chapter 11, just a couple pages away, some of the disciples of John the Baptist are going to come to Jesus and they're going to say, Jesus, essentially, uh, what should we say about you and about what's going on? Are you the one who is to come or is there another one that we should keep on looking for? And Jesus' answer is go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John sends a message and says, Jesus, what should we think about you? Jesus just points in this instance in the middle of his life. He just points to the signs of redemption unfolding all around him. Why? Because these signs of redemption can't be ignored. And today I want to spend a few minutes looking at the story that was read a moment ago as it unfolds here in this passage in front of us. We'll spend a few minutes looking at how the story unfolds, and then we'll spend a few minutes considering the point or the big question that Matthew is putting in front of us, that God is putting in front of us through this passage. These paragraphs unfold in kind of two acts or two scenes. Scene one, act one, if you will, is a story about seeing. It's a story that revolves around what two blind men see. We only know so much about these two blind men here in this passage. If we read the passage that tells a similar story or the same story in the book of Mark, we know that one of these blind men was the son of someone named Timaeus. And so he's called Bar Timaeus. 
but we don't even know the other man's name. But that's kind of how these two men lived their lives, at least up until the point where they met Jesus. You see, to be blind in their day did not mean living like Stevie Wonder. They didn't have cool shades and hit songs and fame and fortune and people flocking around them. To be blind in their day was just the opposite. To be blind in their culture almost always meant living as a beggar. And and because of the fact that some Old Testament passages associate blindness with God's judgment, there was a stigma of sin that was also often going along with blindness. You may remember the question that is asked to Jesus in John chapter 9, verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You hear the assumption in that question, right? To be blind carried a stigma of moral guilt or shame in addition to living in poverty as a beggar. When Jesus passes by, these two blind men begin following Jesus. They start shouting out, Have mercy on us, son of David. I want to think about their words in a second. But before we consider the words that they're hollering at Jesus, maybe it's helpful to pause and think about why these words are here in Matthew's gospel for just a moment. We've pointed out before that Matthew chapters 8 and 9 put these stories about the miraculous wonders of Jesus together with other stories about the miraculous wonders of Jesus in a very intentional and artful way. Beginning in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, there are three stories of healing, all having to do with Jesus' authority. And then there is a teaching about discipleship. And then there are three more historical stories about Jesus' healing wonders. And then more teaching about discipleship. And then there are three more teachings about Jesus and his wondrous authority. And then more teaching about discipleship. Do you see there's a pattern to this? Matthew is linking these things together in an intentional and artful way drawing attention to the authority of Jesus, authority over the wind and the waves, authority over leprosy, authority over sickness, authority over life and death, as we saw last week in the double healing of Jairus' daughter and the weary woman. But it's the disciples 
who are the ones who ask the question, what sort of man is this that the winds and the waves obey him? And this whole block of teachings that artfully and intentionally puts together the wondrous deeds of Jesus has this question kind of echoing throughout it. What sort of man is this? In other words, who is this? Or as we would say in text language, who this? And what's interesting is that in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, these two beggars, these two blind men who can't see with their eyes, they see something that even the disciples haven't yet seen. Jesus passes by and they start calling out because they see something. They start calling out, Son of David! refer to Jesus as the son of David. If we're reading Matthew's gospel from the beginning, we might remember that the phrase son of David is one of the very first words of Matthew's gospel. It's part of the essence of how Matthew wants to introduce us to who Jesus is and why his his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection matter. We need to know that he is the son of David. But what does that mean? Who is David? David was remembered as the greatest of Israel's kings. In fact, he was the anointed king of Israel. And do you know the Hebrew word for an anointed king? The Hebrew word for an anointed king is Mashiach. The word from which we get Messiah. And this is actually where the concept of a Messiah is born. In the prophetic writings of the Old Testament, the prophets speak of a son of David. A son whose kingdom would far exceed the greatness of David's reign. For example, Isaiah had described the future son of David like this, wonderful counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Here in Matthew's Gospel, everybody is beginning to ask the question, what sort of man is this? Jesus walks past two blind men and they give us an answer. They see what even the disciples have not yet seen. He's great David's greatest son. He's the Mashiach, the Messiah. It's so on brand, if you will, that Jesus' Messiahship is announced by beggars. And notice as they cry out to the messianic son of David. They see him not only as one who will come with all authority. 
also see him as one who will come abounding in mercy. And so they cry out, not just simply, wow, you're the son of David. What's their cry? Have mercy on us, son of David. We've got needs. And we're laying them out in front of you. And we're asking that in your grace, in your kindness, because of your love and compassion, we're asking that you would do for us what only you can do. Have mercy on us, son of David. And his mercy is demonstrated in verse 28. Jesus begins speaking with these blind beggars. And notice his question to them in verse 28. Do you believe? It's interesting, his question relates to their faith. Not to their resume. Jesus' question to these blind beggars is not, are you worthy? His question to these blind beggars is not, how well did you obey your parents? His question to these blind beggars is not asking about their performance. How much have you done for the Lord? question is much simpler than that. Do you believe? Which is such a relief, isn't it, that the Lord's mercy works like this? When we cry out to the Lord, let this sink in. He doesn't turn around and ask us for our qualifications. He doesn't turn around and ask us for our worthiness. He doesn't turn around and ask us to prove that we've earned a spot in his favor. When we cry out for the Lord's mercy, he looks in our direction and he simply says, do you believe? But there's actually something more to it than that. Notice that Jesus' question demonstrates that faith, biblically speaking, faith as the Bible talks about it, it has a focus to it. You know, sometimes we talk about faith as if it's kind of like a trait, you know? Like, what's your IQ? How smart are you? Like, what's your vocation? Like, how much can you lift? How strong are you? Like, how athletic are you? But faith is not like some of these things that we might think of as traits that we're born with and that we might develop or something like that in our lives. Faith is not really something about us. It's not something about me. It's not something about you. Faith is not so much about me as it is about what I'm focused on. 
Christian faith is not so much about something intrinsic within you. It's a question about what you are focused on. And so Jesus' question is not simply, are you a person of faith? As if being a person of any kind of faith can bring wellness and transformation and everlasting life. He doesn't just say, are you a person of faith? His question is more specific than that. Faith has a focus. Do you believe that I am? Faith has a focus. And Christian faith has a focus, not inside me, but a focus on Jesus. A focus not on my worthiness, but on His ability A focus not on my strength within, but on His strength for me. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Faith isn't about our resume or our qualities. Faith is depending not on ourselves and our own character. Rather, faith depends on Jesus and His character. It's not looking within, it's looking to Him. And I wonder as we hear the Lord's question to the beggars, I wonder if the Lord intends to use this today as we're sitting here minding our own business with the Bibles open in front of us. And maybe we've stumbled along with some crisis that we feel in our lives. Maybe you've come walking in with a great unfixable problem in your life. And maybe the Spirit of God today is just catching your attention with these simple words of Jesus. Do you believe that I am? Some of us, when we hear the question, do you believe, we want to say, well, Lord, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not perfect, but I have good family values, doing pretty good in school, doing pretty good at my job. Thanks for asking, Jesus. But Jesus says, no, I'm not asking about your qualifications. I'm just asking, do you believe that I am able? I'm not asking you about your qualifications, Jesus says. I'm asking if you trust my qualifications to do the redeeming work. And for these two blind beggars, according to their faith, their eyes opened. Praise God. He is able. By faith, first, these blind men saw the identity of Jesus. And then through faith, these blind men saw the authority of Jesus to give eyesight to the blind. And then according to verse 31, they can't keep the good news to themselves, right? They've got to go and they've got a testimony and they've got to share it, right? They go around telling everybody, I once was blind, but now I see. Because that's what you do when you know that you once were blind and now you can see. You want to tell people about it. And 
that brings us to the second act or the second scene here in our passage for today before we get to the big question that this leaves in front of us. If the first act was a story about seeing, the second act is a story about speaking. It has to do with this issue of demonic influence over speech. We meet a man who is tormented by a demon. This isn't the play spirituality of Halloween. This is real darkness, real evil, real spiritual beings. And this demon influences or controls this man's ability to speak until Jesus shows up and sets him free to speak. This small lesson here, I won't dwell on it long, but listen, Jesus is stronger than what has enslaved you in the past. There really is far more hope than you realize. Because he who is in you really is far more powerful than him who is in the world. There really is far more hope than you realize with respect to things that have enslaved you in the past. Because in Jesus Christ, our mighty Redeemer, there really is far more grace than you realize. But interestingly, in this very concise story, about a verse and a half is all we get. The freedom of the man once mute is not Matthew's focus in telling this story of Jesus' redeeming power, apparently. Instead, it seems that Matthew wants his readers to pay attention not only to the fact that this mute man is now speaking, he wants us to pay attention to the various reactions that come to the undeniable authority of Jesus. Jesus' authority, make no mistake, is undeniable at this point. Even the deepest skeptics aren't walking around and saying, well, that was all a myth. You can't ignore the real Jesus. When somebody shows up and people who were once unable to speak are now speaking. When people who were unable to see are now seeing. When a girl who was once dead is now alive. You can't ignore that. You can't tell everybody just look the other way. But what can you do? You can try to explain it away. And that's exactly what happens here in this account in Matthew chapter 9. There are some who hear about the undeniable authority of Jesus and they marvel. The crowds marvel 
at Jesus saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Verse 33. And this is a basically good response. Although, as we continue on in the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see how committed the crowds are or are not. There's this interesting issue that's just starting to play out. We haven't really seen it yet. But this issue that will start to unfold in Matthew's Gospel that that reminds us that you can be intrigued by Jesus. You can even be amazed by some of the power of Jesus without being committed in faith to Jesus. So there are the crowds who marvel, but then how do the Pharisees respond? According to verse 34, there are a group of Pharisees, religious leaders in their time and place, who say, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Sometimes when we talk about faith in Jesus, we'll kind of think to ourselves, you know, If I could have only been there. If I could only have seen those things when they happened, then I'd be like a strong believer. But Matthew chapter 9 verse 34 tells us something about the hardness that the human heart is capable of. Even if we are eyewitnesses to the astonishing authority of Jesus Christ to give sight to the blind, to set a man free from demonic influence and restore speech to someone who was unable to speak, even if we were there to see a dead girl given new life, there's something about the hardness that is possible in the human heart that we can see all of that and still say, yeah, he just has demonic authority. That's what it is. The Pharisees criticize and explain away Jesus' authority as demonic. This is what happens when we allow self-righteousness to get too deep of a grip in our heart. When self-righteousness really gets a grip in our hearts, one of the first signs is we just become kind of nitpicky and critical of other people around us. And we just become kind of a pain in the neck to everybody we interact with. We probably don't see it ourselves, but other people around us will feel it. And if you pay attention to the ways that other people respond to you, you can start to notice when this self-righteousness starts to make you a little bit cranky and a little bit nitpicky and a little bit too critical. But beware of the dangers of self-righteousness. 
which leads not only into being socially annoying. Self-righteousness, more than just making us socially annoying, it can lead us to a place where our hearts are so hardened that we would find fault even with the Son of God Himself were He to stand in front of us and demonstrate His mercy and His kindness. Beware the danger of self-righteousness, which would lead us to criticize even Jesus. Of course, this issue of criticizing Jesus hasn't gone away, has it? 2,000 years later, we're still living in a world where people realize there's something about Jesus. There's something undeniable about the authority of about the authority of a man with 120 followers living in a Jewish province of the Roman Empire 2000 years ago who now has followers in every inhabited continent of this planet. There's an undeniable authority about Jesus that you can't dismiss, you can't ignore. But what can you do with it? You can try to explain it away, maybe by saying it's demonic. We don't like demons anymore, so we don't exactly call it demonic. But if you talk with people who don't, believe in Jesus, you spend time with neighbors and friends who are following other paths in life, eventually, if you listen long enough, you'll hear people criticizing Jesus and saying things kind of like this. It's not that I'm saying that Jesus wasn't an influential world leader, of course he was, but my concern is that Jesus and his influence have been bad for the world. The most famous version of this comes from Christopher Hitchens, who says, God is certainly not good if you're an Amalekite, referring to a people group who fought against and were defeated by God's people in the Old Testament. And there are all kinds of variations of this. Jesus' teachings are not good for women, some will say. Jesus' teachings are not good for marginalized people in various parts of the world. Jesus' teachings are not good for the poor, some will say. And this criticism has some teeth to it, right? Because if Jesus' teachings aren't good for women, like that is concerning. And if Jesus' teachings are not good for marginalized and poor, like that is concerning, right? That's why the criticism has some teeth to it. I don't have time to do so today, but one of the ways we respond to these criticisms is simply 
to recognize, of course, there are many Christians who have done all kinds of terrible things in the name of Jesus, and I hate that too. But if we're honest about the facts, we also need to recognize that that Jesus and his teachings have reached every part of the planet. And there are women and men and children from cultures all around the world who will testify to having found freedom and life and joy by following Jesus as their Lord. So what are we going to do with that? There are people today, just as in Jesus' day, who will say, I won't deny that Jesus was influential, but I will deny that Jesus was good. I will suggest that some will say that Jesus was diabolical. Sure, he had authority, but it was a demonic kind of authority. Not good, not really redemptive. What will we say to such things? This puts us now finally in contact with the main question that these paragraphs put in front of us, and we'll think together about the answer. The main question that these paragraphs put in front of us is this. How do you see Jesus and what do you say about him? You'll notice that as these verses unfold, there's an ironic contrast. On the one hand, there are blind people who see clearly by faith. And on the other hand, there are religious leaders who are truly blind to the glory of Jesus. On the one hand, there is a man who is a man without words who is set free from demonic bondage. On the other hand, there are men who use their words to call Jesus evil and demonic. And Matthew uses this deep irony to surface this question, how do you see Jesus? And what do you say about him? Later on, the New Testament explains both the problem and the solution in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 saying in their case the god of this world which is a phrase that refers to the enemy in their case the enemy has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's the problem. We all, apart from Jesus, even though we've been using our eyesight since we were little kids, 
And even though like the Pharisees, some of us have a pretty good a pretty good background using our eyesight to read the pages of Scripture. And yet apart from the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ, like the Pharisees, even if we've lived our whole lives using our eyes and even using our eyes to read the Scriptures, we would remain blinded to the glory of Jesus. Here's the good news that 2 Corinthians 4 puts in front of us. Yet God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Our God who said, according to your faith, be it done to you, has shown into our hearts by the miraculous work of His Spirit, giving us eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Eyes to see and freedom from the enemy's grip are gifts of the Spirit. Through the mercy of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. You see, this is every Christian's testimony of amazing grace. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Still today, there are many answers to the question... What do you see about Jesus? And what do you say about Him? There's so many ways of answering that question. Who do you say Jesus is? What sort of man is this? There are so many ways to answer that question. Jesus can't be ignored, but we can try to explain Him away. And so the question remains, how do you see Jesus and what will you go and say about him? And as Christians, here's the answer that Matthew chapter 9 is drawing us toward. You see, whatever others may say. Those who were once blind now see that Jesus is the merciful Messiah with all authority and abounding in mercy. Whatever others may say, sure, Jesus had power, but it's just demonic power. There's other ways to explain miracles, you know. Whatever others may say, sure, Jesus was an influential teacher, but his teachings are kind of not good, not healthy, not righteous enough for our standards. Whatever others may say, those who were once blind, but have now seen the Son of David, In love 
laying down his own life for us on the cross. And those of us who have seen that after he was crucified for us and for our salvation, he rose again in new life, in triumph over sin and death. Listen, whatever others may say, we can't help but testify as those who were once blind. We can't help but testify to what we've seen. He is the merciful Messiah. The son of David with all authority and abounding in mercy for lost and blind people like me. Brothers and sisters, this is our invitation. Let's come and behold all his mercy and in all his majesty. And if you came today not trusting in Jesus as Lord, well, I don't expect that my words will persuade you one way or another. I'm not so foolish as to pretend that I can just say a few things from the Bible and just my words will have some sway on your heart. But I do believe that Jesus is alive. And he's active and he's at work today. And I wonder if you even kind of feel in your heart and sense by the Spirit that God is saying to you today that the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us and rose again in triumph from the, the grave. I wonder if you can hear him saying to you today, do you believe that I am able. And it's our joy to invite you today to respond in faith to begin the journey of following him. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.